You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. This is the MIT Alumni Books podcast. I'm Joe McGonigal, Director of Alumni Education. Eric J. Dolan is my guest. He is PhD, class of 1995, author of a dozen books, most recently, Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse, published this spring by Norton. Eric Dolan, thanks for joining us. Your editor approached you with the idea for the book I read. Uh, why say yes? Well, it's an interesting story. For all the other books that I've written, I've come up with the idea. But I just finished a book called When America First Met China, and I was looking around for another topic, and I wasn't having much luck. And that's when my editor contacted my agent. He said that he had had lunch with the head of sales at Norton, and they wanted to know if I was interested in writing this book. Initially, I didn't say yes because I knew nothing about lighthouses. So I asked for about a month to read a bunch of books on lighthouses and get immersed in the topic, and I was just uh, fascinated. I, I had no idea that lighthouses were so interesting. I knew almost nothing about them, but after doing all that reading, I discovered that this is an amazing story of the American experience. Lighthouses offer a great opportunity to tell a narrative history of the United States that is really fascinating and consequential. It was a book about war, technology, disaster, personal triumph, art, poetry, hope, technological innovation. I mean, it had a little bit of everything. And when I finished the book, I looked back and I realized that each chapter could have been its own book. It was There's so much rich history out there about America's lighthouses. I started reading the book. I couldn't tell I had an MIT alum at work <laughs> in the accounting that you were doing of uh, each and every lighthouse from the very beginning to the, uh, I think, in the first chapter or so, tw the first 12 lighthouses, and then 700 by book's end we've gone through that are extant in America. But how else is your MIT education alive and well here? When I went to MIT in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning, I was committed to becoming a professor of environmental policy. But about halfway or three-quarters of the way through my graduate degree, I decided that I didn't want to be a professor, in large part because I knew that the kinds of articles and books that I would have to write to get tenure at a good university were not the type of writing that I really was interested in. And, and I had a tough time during my Ph.D. program. I'll be the first to admit it. And uh, so I wasn't going to be a professor. And I finished my Ph.D. and I worked for the federal government and environmental groups for many years, but writing had always been something that I loved to do. In fact, when I was struggling with my PhD, one of my advisors, Larry Bacow, he saw that I was having a tough time, and he made a recommendation. He, says, he said, Eric, you know, you're a really good writer. Why don't you drop out of the PhD program and become a writer? And I looked at Larry, and I said, the only thing more pathetic than a PhD student is a writer. <laughs> so I, I went forward and I finished my PhD, but there is a strong connection between my writing and my graduate degree. And that is, the, those are the skills that I learned while I was at MIT. Even though I had a tough time, I became an excellent researcher and I was very good at synthesizing huge amounts of information and putting them into what I thought were readable prose. So those skills have served me well for every single book that I've worked on because I'm not intimidated by the research. I think I've honed 
the skill of writing for a general audience as opposed to an academic audience. I think I'm still bridging the academic and the popular world, but my interests and my focus are definitely on the popular side. And if I could write books that uh, share some of the excitement I felt in doing the research and the writing with the reader, then I know that I've accomplished my goal. For alumni who are chemists, you've got some chemistry in here of uh, talking about the types of whale oil in winter and summer that are used as a fuel. Uh, plenty of optics for the physics majors, uh, the, the geographic range of light. What is the geographic range of light? The geographic range of light just has to do with the height at which the lantern room is of the light. So obviously you have a curvature of the earth. The higher the light, the greater uh, distance away that it can potentially be seen, but that also has to be synced with the luminous range of the lighthouse, and that's the power of the light itself. So if you have a 50-foot-tall lighthouse, obviously you'll be able to see uh, much further out than a 25-foot-tall lighthouse. So on the East Coast, we tend to have very tall lighthouses. On the West Coast, where there are these promontories that are already 100 or 200 feet above the sea level, the lighthouses are often a little stubbier. <laughs> you, you talk about the other uh, obstacles for optics, the ash that accumulates on the windows. And uh, right. well, you write about the, the gay headlight in Martha's Vineyard, the salt <laughs> accumulation on the outside of the window. Yeah, the, the salt. And, well, if, if any of your listeners have been to Gay Head, they know that those cliffs are absolutely gorgeous. They're multi-hued uh, clay. There's oranges, reds. But the problem is that clay can often become airborne, and it was primarily the clay mixed with salt that used to blow up along the hill, up over the ridge, and land on the panes of glass that were at the outside of the lantern room. And the keeper there, way back in the early 1800s, used to have to go out and manually clean the panes of glass quite often to keep them free from the grime. And in fact, he asked for a raise from President Thomas Jefferson, partly on account of that extra work that he had to do that other lighthouse keepers up and down the coast weren't required to do. Then he got a $50 raise. Yes, he got a $50 raise. <laughs> Talk about uh, how involved presidents were with lighthouses. I guess it, it uh, speaks to the essential nature of them in the 1700s versus I don't think President Obama has thought a lot about lighthouses in the last eight years. But you had uh, it was the ninth law passed by Congress, and you had uh, George Washington considering how much certain lighthouse keepers drank. You have to also keep in mind back then the federal government was much, much smaller. So there are a lot of things that the uh, higher-up officials kept their eye on that in later years as the government got so much bigger, they had to delegate responsibilities. So it was partly a function of how important lighthouses were to the commerce of the country, but also the size of the government enabled presidents even to reach down and get involved in those kinds of day-to-day decisions that they certainly wouldn't want to be involved in or couldn't be involved in in later years. And even before uh, we had a country, you had somebody like Benjamin Tupper. Tell us the story of Benjamin Tupper's uh, Boston Lighthouse attack. This was 1775? Yeah, 1775. Well, lighthouses uh, don't differentiate between friend and foe. So when the American Revolution started and was centered in Boston, the American rebels were concerned that the lighthouse out at the mouth of Boston Harbor 
would help guide the British Navy in and out of the port. So George Washington ordered Benjamin Tupper, along with 300 soldiers, to disable the lighthouse so the British couldn't use it. They burned a lot of the structures out there. They killed a number of British Marines in the process. But then the, Brit the Brits knew how important the lighthouse was to their naval containment of the city, and they sent a whole slew of Marines and engineers out to Brewster Island, where the lighthouse was located. And over the span of a number of months, they rebuilt the lighthouse so that it was gleaming once again. But that wasn't the end of the story, because the following year, on March 17th, which anybody who went to MIT probably knows is celebrated as Evacuation Day, the British Navy left Boston Harbor and headed to Nova Scotia. But before they left, they were harried by American soldiers shooting at them, and they decided to leave a parting gift. And a couple of Marines landed on Little Brewster Island with a keg of gunpowder. They put it at the base of the lighthouse. They lit the fuse. They got back in their boat, went back to their ship, sailed off, and within about an hour, the lighthouse was reduced to rubble. So the lighthouse that you see now at the mouth of Boston Harbor, Boston Light, it was actually built in 1783. The first one was built in 1716, but then the British blew it up, and uh, the new nation, however, needed that lighthouse, so they rebuilt it. This is a buzzkill for anybody who celebrates Evacuation Day. <laughs> Actually, the British got the last word that day. They, they did. The book, uh, it's a celebration of a very analog uh, device in our world, you know, a candle lighting the way at first uh, in mm -hmm. the dark and then, um, you know, advances. Is there anything today that makes lighthouses a 21st century technology? Hmm. Yeah, well, some of them are powered by solar panels now. They have small halogen lights they don't use Fresnel lenses anymore. I mean, a number of them still have Fresnel lenses, but most of them have modern optics that use the Fresnel technology, the prismatic technology, to bend the light and focus the beam in a particular direction. They're, they're modern in that sense, and there's electrical feeds, and there are switches that go on and off. But I wouldn't say that modern lighthouses are examples of high-tech. <laughs> of course, uh, lighthouse keepers nowadays are uh, nonprofits. The, the Coast Guard still manages a number of them, right? And, uh, right. and, and individual owners who have probably tricked them out with all sorts of uh, high-tech gizmos, but yeah, <laughs> not what they were intended for necessarily. Uh, you talk about the, uh, the range of prices that these fetch you know, in the open market these days. $10,000 somebody paid for a lighthouse on Lake Erie. That, that's low end, and there have been a, almost 50 lighthouses have been sold to private individuals, and that's only after the Coast Guard first has to offer the lighthouses that are no longer central to their mission. They, they first have to offer them to government agencies or nonprofit groups who will take care of them, and they can transfer the lighthouse and the lighthouse station free of charge. But if there are no takers, that's when the government will put the lighthouse up for auction and private individuals can bid. And as you said, the cheapest sale or the least expensive sale though, thus far is that $10,000. But the most expensive is right here in Boston or a little bit outside of Boston. It's the Graves Light, which if you head out a little bit beyond Boston Light and you basically take a left and go up towards Nahant, you'll hit Graves Light, which sold a few years ago for $934,000. 
you bookend the book, so to speak, uh, with Boston Light, and you, in your epilogue, no spoilers here, you visit Boston Light. There's some of the most beloved and romanticized things you say, uh, right. photographed. Uh, there's some ugly ones and some uninspiring ones, and you <laughs> end the book with a visit to your own lighthouse, too. Talk about Marblehead Light. Marblehead Light, the original Marblehead Light was built in 1835. It was a squat, 23-foot-tall stone or maybe brick lighthouse. They're not exactly sure. And it worked fine. It was out on Marblehead Neck, which is a promontory next to the harbor. The Marblehead Neck wasn't used for much other than pasturage and drying fish. So it was easy for the mariners coming in and out of the harbor to see the lighthouse from afar. But then in the 1860s, uh, wealthy people, predominantly from Boston, started building what were called summer cottages on the neck. And today we call them mansions. They're rather large houses and they blocked the lighthouse. So the mariners started complaining and the lighthouse board decided first to put up a 100-foot pole and raise a kerosene lantern to the top of it every night. But that wasn't a satisfactory conclusion. So they agreed to build a 100-foot-tall brick lighthouse. But in the end, they decided brick was too expensive, so they built a skeletal tower out of iron, which is the lighthouse that stands there today. It's about 105 feet tall. I've never done a poll, but my guess is maybe half the people in town don't particularly like it. It's not super attractive. The other half absolutely love it. You can see it in logos throughout the town. People paint it a lot. I like it. I would have preferred a brick or a stone lighthouse out there because it's much more in keeping with the character of New England, but it has its own charm. Customers who bought this book, Amazon tells me, also bought Valiant Ambition, George Washington, Benedict Arnold, and the Fate of the American Revolution by Nathaniel Philbrick, The Gene and Intimate History by Siddhartha Mukherjee, Number of the Stars by Lois Lowry, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. I'll talk about that company and this book sitting among it. Well, it's great. Well, actually, Nat's a friend of mine. I know him. Uh, he wrote a blurb from my whaling book way back in 2007, and since then, I've been able to get together with him a number of times. I enjoy his books. The other books I am familiar with, I, I'm honored to, one, be a writer, two, be a reasonably successful writer, and three, to have my readers be the type of people who would read those books. I feel extremely fortunate to be a writer, period, and anything else that happens is great. You're already knee-deep into the next one. Yeah. Actually, this morning I was working on it. It's a book on pirates, on American pirates, looking at how pirates influenced the colonies and how the colonies influenced pirates from the mid-1600s through the early 1700s. And tell me what else you're reading right now. I just finished an interesting book called Lab Girl. It's a big bestseller by Hope Jaron. It's about a woman who is a biologist and geologist, and it's sort of a book interweaving her life as a scientist with her personal life, which takes some very dramatic twists and turns. I'm just starting a book now. An acquaintance of mine, Lawrence Burgreen, just sent me an advanced review copy of his new book called Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. But I, I want to add that I don't read a lot for enjoyment because every single book that I've written are on topics that I don't know a lot about. And I'm not a trained historian, even though people call me an historian. So I have to read so many books just to get up to speed enough to write something that almost 
all of my time is taken up reading books and articles and primary documents that relate to the topic that I'm working on at the moment. Eric J. Dolan is the author of Billion Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse, published by Norton in April 2016. Eric J. Dolan, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much.